This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Joining us today is someone who's no stranger. Jim DiEugenio has spoken with us on many occasions over the years. His website, kennedysandking.com, is one we've quoted on many occasions also. A couple weeks back, this correspondent went on an extended rant in the wake of criticism in Rolling Stone about the documentary JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. We did not like Tim Weiner's cheap shots at the documentary and its host, Oliver Stone. Stone's 1991 film JFK should have won the Oscar for Best Picture, in my humble opinion, but irrefutably, it did a great deal of good by inspiring the JFK Records Act based on the public outrage over how much remained classified. Now, you may recall near the end of the film, a panel was put up informing the public that a great deal of curious data was still withheld. The film itself made an ample case for the crime being the result of behind-the-scenes manipulation of Lee Oswald before the murder and a lot of evidence afterwards. James Diogenio is highly familiar with the strange pre-assassination story of young Oswald, having written extensively on that topic. He was thus a good choice to have written the narrative for JFK Revisited, which he did. There's a lot to talk about. We'd like to get started by saying welcome back to Radio Parallax, James Diogenio. Well, thank you so much. One of the things that I was determined to do in writing the screenplay for JFK Revisited, both Through the Looking Glass, which is the two-hour version, and Destiny Betrayed, which is the four-hour version, that's that's been playing overseas, by the way. So uh, you know, I, I think we should make that clear that uh, the four-hour version has played in Australia very successfully, and it's playing in the United Kingdom very successfully, and in certain spots in Europe, like in Italy, it's it's already played. It has not come to America yet. My latest information about when it's coming to America is. March the 6th, okay. okay? That's when it's supposed to be the, the play date, okay? Now, when I wrote the screenplay, what I wanted to do was incorporate as much as I could about the ARB into that screenplay. The Assassination Records Review Board was created as a result of the national furor that... Oliver Stone's JFK, let me put it very simply. I know a lot about movies. No movie ever raised the ruckus that this movie did. And by the way, it started seven months before. Okay, seven months before it was released. So after it was released, the furor went on for about four or five more months. And then Congress decided that, well, we're going to have to do something about this because this movie has created so much uh, sen- sensational talk about Kennedy's assassination. And so, as you said, at the end of the film, Stone told the audience that the files of the House Select Committee on Assassination were still being classified, which was true. And so what happened was they created this board of five people, taken from civilian life to go ahead and start declassifying this stuff. 
And over four years, from 1994 to 1998, they declassified approximately 2 million pages of documents that had either been fully classified, that is not seen, or, as they say, redacted in part, which means parts of the page were blacked out and you couldn't read them. And so, if you can believe it, four years wasn't enough, and there was still stuff being declassified as late as 2007, because they would put uh, marks on the document as to when this could be declassified in the future. And even after that, there was still stuff that was not being declassified, about 15,800 pages. Was that provided for in the legislation, or was that just, that just foot-dragging, or both? What this was was stuff that was finally left up to the president, okay, that the review board could not get to. You know, they didn't have enough time. Four years, as we say in the movie, John Thunheim, who was the chair, says he admitted it should have been an open-ended process. Right. Because people got the feeling on the CIA, the FBI, State Department, that they could just wait these guys out. And so this is how it ended up being with 15,800 pages documents still being withheld. Trump gave a six-month extension. Then he gave a three-year extension. Biden declassified about one-tenth of it, and he gave it another year until the end of next year for it to be declassified. So in other words, if you just do the arithmetic, it's almost five years from when it was supposed to, everything was supposed to be declassified, which was 2017. Right. Now, I ask you a question. If this was an open and shut case, <laughs> why on earth would it take 59 years? Well, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a very good question. I want to throw one out right away. Do you think there's a chance in hell next year that we're going to see all those documents released? No. I didn't either. <laughs> no, I don't. And one other thing. My understanding was the one of the things specifically omitted from the Records Act was that they would not release Oswald's tax record from like 1962. And you have to ask, why should that be? Wait until you see the four-hour version. And you'll see what Doug Horn has to say about that. Okay. Very, very interesting. I'm waiting that anxiously. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> okay. Now, some of the things the review board declassified were very, very, very interesting. For example, there was a plan that the Joint Chiefs of Staff presented to John F. Kennedy, okay, in, I believe, 1962. All right, it was presented to them as a pretext to invade Cuba. Right. All right, because these guys were upset that Kennedy, when he had the perfect opportunity during the failed Bay of Pigs operation, did not invade Cuba. Okay? And so they decided to present what they call in spy parlance a false flag operation. In other words, you blame or provoke something on another country in order to go ahead and disguise your own role in it. Uh, Jim, I have to add that the, the, the Biden administration used the exact term last week in describing how the Russians were probably going to do a false flag operation to justify their invasion of, of uh, Ukraine. You're utterly correct on that. 
what they were going to do is that they were going to go ahead and, and do something like, for example, uh, use Cuban exiles to simulate terrorist attacks in Miami, blame it on Castro, and then use that to go ahead and invade Cuba. I think there are a total of 11 or 12 of these plans. Okay, one of them even included flying a drone plane over Cuba, detonating it and saying it got hit by Castro, okay, you know, uh -huh. and using that as an excuse to invade Cuba. All right, well, Kennedy rejected the, the whole idea, all right, and then he went ahead and he got rid of Lyman Lemnitzer, the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman, and he said he didn't want to hear any more about this stuff. And by the way, in my opinion, we would have never learned about this except for the ARB. That is fascinating. That I mean, this is such a it's such a curious episode, and yet, until this ARB came along and loosened these documents, we would have never known. Right. Now, another very important thing that the ARB let loose was the records of the May 1963 SecDef conference in Hawaii. The SecDef conference was meetings that Robert McNamara, Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, would have concerning the Vietnam War, okay? And he would call everybody over, you know, from South Vietnam, State Department, CIA, uh, Pentagon, and they would have a meeting about what was going on there, the progress. And so at this May 1963 meeting, McNamara had requested withdrawal schedules, okay, from everybody, from every department. And they were submitted at this meeting, okay? And McNamara took a look at the withdrawal schedules and said, this isn't fast enough. It has to be speeded up. In other words, Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam, all right? And another thing that we found was an interview with Roswell Gilpatrick, who was McNamara's deputy. And during that interview... Gilpatrick said McNamara had told him that Kennedy had given him instructions to start winding down this war. Well, your do your do Jim, your documentary shows some of the wording on the screen of what was in there, and, 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 and like it couldn't be more explicit that McNamara looked at this like this is going to escalate into a quagmire. The reason we did that is if you were, and you were around back then. Yeah. All right. In 1991, when... Oliver's film came out, and this was a major part of the structure of the movie. Oliver got hit over the head from every different direction about this thesis. If you remember, George Lardner, when he attacked the movie in the Washington Post, said that this was silly, that there was no change in policy about Vietnam after Kennedy's assassination, which is utter and complete crap. Right. Okay? We know now for certain, in my opinion, we knew it back then, but we know now for certain that Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam, and we now know for certain that Johnson reversed his policy completely by, at the very most, March of 1964. So that there, there was an abrupt change in policy after Kennedy's death in Vietnam. And, and so it, these are the kind of things that the ARB had declassified 
But yet, most of the public wasn't very familiar with this stuff. And so when I got the job of writing this screenplay, I decided that this is one of the focuses of this film should be. Jim, how did you get the job of writing this screenplay? So let me explain how this happened. In 2013, I did a speech at Cyril Weck's conference on JFK. I think it was called Passing the Torch. And in that speech, what I did is I started the speech by saying, I'm going to talk an hour about Kennedy's foreign policy, and we're not going to talk about Vietnam or Cuba. And I said, this is about the opposite of what you'll see in 90% of all the Kennedy assassination books, because that's all they deal with is Vietnam and Cuba. But what I'm going to argue here is that Kennedy's foreign policy everywhere was pretty much consistent, and Vietnam and Cuba were not exceptions. But if you did know what he was doing everywhere else, you would have understood what he was doing in Vietnam and Cuba. You know, Kennedy was going to be a neutralist in the third world. He did not want direct American intervention in the third world. Okay, and he learned that lesson a long time ago when he went into Saigon in 1951 and had a meeting with diplomat Edmund Gullion. And Gullion told him that France is not going to win the war in Vietnam because Ho Chi Minh had fired up the Viet Minh, that is the rebels in the South, to the point that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. France could not win a war of attrition like that because the home front would not support it. And if America tried to succeed France in Vietnam, the same fate would befall the United States. I don't see how any truer words could have ever been spoken about Indochina than that. And Bobby Kennedy was on that journey with his brother. And Robert Kennedy said that the conversation with Gullion had a very deep impact on his brother's thinking about America in the third world. Okay, so that's the speech I gave. I was, it was on that subject. By the way, I was in the audience. You did a great job. <laughs> Thank you so much. Rob Wilson, Oliver's producer on JFK Revisited, was at that speech, but Oliver was not. So a few years later, when my publisher called up Oliver because he wanted him to do an introduction to a book that was going to be called The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. That's the last book I've written on this case. Oliver called me up and said he wanted me to come down to his office and give him some ideas about what to write. So I did. And then I don't know how this happened, but me and Rob and Oliver were sitting in his office, and for some reason that speech came up. Okay, I I really don't recall who brought it up, but I did say something like, Oh, you should have been there. It brought down the house, which, by the way, it did. It got like about a 25-second standing yeah, ovation. It did. It All right? did, yes. Yeah. And so Oliver said, oh, I didn't see that. Okay, for I don't know why he wasn't there, but he wasn't there. So, But then a few weeks later, Rob calls me up, and he says, Jim, bring down the PowerPoint for that speech you gave. I said, okay, fine. So I brought down the PowerPoint. Oliver wanted to see it. He saw it, and that sealed the deal. Okay, <laughs> That's when the decision was made to go ahead and make a documentary 
okay, about the JFK case in light of the ARB. So there were, there were two parts of the documentary one, that were separate from each other. Okay, one was on Kennedy and his emerging foreign policy, and how it was different than Eisenhower's. And then the second part was going to be the discoveries of the ARB, of the Assassinations Record Review Board. We're speaking with author James Eugenio. He wrote the screenplay for the documentary JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. Now, in planning the screenplay, I think about one-third of it was on the JFK part, and about two-thirds of it were on the forensics part of it, the new discoveries made in the case. One of the things I knew I was going to have to address was the incredible medical discoveries that were made under the ARB because the chief counsel, Jeremy Gunn, and the military analyst, Doug Horn, had done a new investigation into the medical aspects of the case. I believe that they interviewed something like 13 people, and they declassified the whole House Select Committee inquiry into the medical case because, a little-known fact, Stokes, who was the final uh, chair of the House Select Committee of Assassinations, Louis Stokes, represented from Ohio, he was very much disturbed by the movie because when he went to see the film and then that famous uh, crawl came on the screen about the House Select Committee files being classified. Right. His daughter was with him, and she said, why did you do that, Dad? <laughs> so, so this kind of bothered him, and so he had a private conference with the ARB, and he said, I really do think you should reinvestigate the medical evidence because nobody was happy with what we did with it. And so that's another reason they had this reinvestigation. I'm not a medical guy. I'm not a doctor. I know a lot about the medical evidence, but, you know, I don't concentrate on it. So I decided that I was going to have Millicent Craner, who did concentrate on it. She's very good at this. I would consult with her about what are the things I should bring up. And I, I couldn't tell her that I was doing this for Oliver because Oliver wanted it kept secret. Right. But I asked her so many questions on this via email that she ended up understanding what I was doing. And towards the end, she said, tell Oliver I said good luck. <laughs> okay, so, so from her, I decided that there should be two major things and two sub-themes that I was going to pursue. One of them was CE399. Yes. I think your audience will understand CE-399 is a technical term for the magic bullet. Right. Okay. This is the projectile that the Warren Commission said, as Oliver so well defined in his film, it went through Kennedy and Conley, making seven wounds and smashing two bones, and emerged at Parkland Hospital in a nearly intact state on God knows whose stretcher that was. There's a lively debate about where it was found. I think the case has been made that it was, it was a stretch that had nothing to do with either Conley or Kennedy. 
Yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Don Thomas and Tink Thompson have both concluded that it was a little boy named Ronnie Fuller, that it was likely his stretcher. What the board did on this, I thought was very interesting. Through the work of Gary Aguilar and Josiah Thompson, they tracked down Bardwell Odom, FBI agent. In the Warren Commission volumes, now remember what I just said, this is in the Warren Commission volumes, okay, which is where all the testimony and exhibits are, you know, which includes affidavits and reports. It says that Bardwell Odom had taken the bullet back to Parkland Hospital, Mm -hmm. and that the two first people who handled the bullet, which were O.P. Wright and Daryl Tomlinson, they both identified positively the bullet in evidence as the bullet they found. All right? Except, except, as Gary and Josiah specified, there's a very odd thing about this. (laughs) There was no report. And so they said, well, wait a minute. If these two guys possibly identified it, why would Odom not write a report about it? And so Gary and Josiah collected all the reports dealing with 399, and they couldn't find it. So they're sitting around Thompson's office one afternoon, and I think it was Thompson who said, (laughs) well, why don't we talk to Uh Bardwell Odom? Let's give him a call. And so how are we going to find him? And and Thompson was a private investigator, so he has one of those databases where you can find anybody. Okay, there he is. Okay, and so they found where he was. They call him up, and they ask him about this. And he says, I never showed that bullet to anybody. <laughs> right. Right. And, and if I did, I would sure remember because me and O.P. Wright were buddies. Right. And plus, I would have filed a report on that. You're damned right I would have filed a report on that. He was quite adamant. I, I would have filed a 302 report, which is what you, I would normally do in the circumstance. Right. In other words, this was a pile of baloney. It, 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 it did not happen. On top of that, I was going to use the work of John Hunt, who essentially, as we talk about in the movie, he moved into the National Archives because he wanted to find out even more about this CE-399. Now, also in the Warren Commission volumes, again, let me stress that, this is in the Warren Commission volumes. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. It's not something some researcher made up. This is in the Warren Commission volumes. It says that Elmer Lee Todd had the bullet given to him at the White House by James Rowley of the Circuit Service. He initialed the bullet, and he delivered it to Robert Frazier at the FBI lob sometime around 9 o'clock that evening. Right. Because he was in receipt of the bullet at 8.50, so it must have been a little bit like 9 o'clock or something that he delivered the bullet to uh, Frazier, who was the, the big tech guy on ballistics at the FBI lab. So what happened is that John Hunt requested the 360-degree photographs of the bullet, okay? The whole circumference plus the top and the bottom, all right? And he came to the conclusion that anybody can see is that Elmer Lee Todd's initials are not on the bullet. Now, I didn't know this 
this is one of the things I found out when we were filming the picture. Dave Mantic had been to the archives before John Hunt was there. But at that time, I, I believe he was there in 1994, they actually let you handle the bullet. Okay, and he said the same thing. And he had a witness with him. He had a friend with him. Right. Okay, and they both looked at the bullet, and they go, Amelie Todd's initials are not on this bullet. So this was a second lie that the FBI had made up. Your chain of custody that you put in the documentary is, is actually hilarious. It's found by a maintenance guy, Tomlinson. He gives it to a personnel manager, right? They're later shown a bullet and say, does it look like that? And they're like, no, it was more pointy. <laughs> then Wright passes it on to Richard Johnson, Secret Service, who passes it on to James Rowley, who's the chief of the Secret Service, who's supposedly the guy that then hands it to Elmer Todd of the FBI, who then passes it on to Frazier, who's with the FBI's lab. Right. There's no proof that any of this took place on, on this particular bullet. You're absolutely correct. And here, here is the cap. Todd gets the bullet at 8.50, okay, from Rowley. But if you look at the paperwork that Fraser kept, he writes down in two places that received the stretcher bullet at 7.30. As Dave Mantic says in the film, how is that possible? <laughs> how could he receive the stretcher bullet at 7.30 when Todd didn't get the stretcher bullet till an hour and 20 minutes later? Unless, were there two stretcher bullets? Your medical people point out this bullet does wonders for the whole theory that there's one guy shooting because it's absolutely matchable to the rifle, <laughs> the supposed murder weapon. And it's like, except that they can't really figure out how it could have gone on either guy's stretcher. And, and there's no chain of custody. And the other guy says, no, the, my bullet didn't look like that. So right. it seems prudent to suspect that that bullet was, in fact, planted. I don't think we actually said that in the movie because no. I didn't want to go that far. That. No, you didn't say that, but I'm saying it. How's that? <laughs> it's the inescapable conclusion, I believe. Somebody planted that bullet, and that's the person that they should have been looking for. The whole idea that this bullet is a legitimate piece of evidence, I mean, it would be literally laughed out of court. That's why we had that beautiful 25-second speech it's not the best part of the film, but it's my favorite part of the film, where you have Henry Lee, the most illustrious criminalist in America, explaining the whole concept of chain of custody. And I, by the way, let me explain how this happened. I didn't know that Henry Lee had been a police captain for five years back in Taipei, the biggest city in Taiwan. He calls me up one afternoon at 3 o'clock and says, Jim, I'm in Los Angeles. Why don't you meet me at this restaurant and give me the questions you want to ask me for the film? So he's out at Malibu. If you know anything about L.A., you call somebody at 3 o'clock <laughs> and say, meet you at Malibu. Unless you're already there, there's only one way into Malibu. Yes. That's off the 10 freeway. Yeah. Okay, so it took me two hours to get there. But I did get there, okay? And I said, I didn't know that you were a captain in the police force. And he goes, yeah, I did that for five years. And I said, well, then you must have supervised a lot of investigations. And he goes, yeah. And I said, then you must know a lot about chain of custody. And he went into that speech that he gives in the film okay. right there at the restaurant. He goes, chain of custody does not begin at the police station. Chain of custody begins at the crime scene. Okay, and you have to catalog and you have to photograph everything that you found as you found it. 
Okay, then you take it to the station. And if anybody does any further analysis or any further examination of any piece of evidence you have, that has to be signed for. And there has to be a date and there has to be a time when he checked it out, when he brought it back in. And then when everything like that is done, then you present it to the court. And if there is a break in that chain of custody, if there is something unexplained, or if a piece of evidence does not match the photograph you had at the beginning, then the judge can deem it inadmissible. And that's why you have these rules. See, the thing is, and what people don't understand, chain of custody is for the prosecution. It's to make sure that their case does not get blown up. Uh-huh. You know, when you come to court. Well, CE-399, in my opinion, would never be admitted into a court of law. There's so many holes in the chain of custody of that bullet that if I was Oswald's lawyer, I would hope it would get admitted so I could absolutely demolish it, you know, in right. court in so many different ways. So that was going to be one keystone. My second keystone was going to be Jeremy Gunn's examination of John Stringer. John Stringer is the official photographer of Kennedy's autopsy. And he did, presumably, all the photographs, including the photographs of Kennedy's brain. And this part's very interesting. Jeremy Gunn obviously had done his homework on this issue because I think he suspected at the beginning that there was going to be a problem with these pictures of Kennedy's brain. Okay, for example, to show you one problem, the official weight of Kennedy's brain is 1,500 grams. A typical weight of a male brain is about 1,375 grams. Right. If you take a look at the Zapruder film, if you take a look at the pictures of the back seat of the car, if you take a look at Jackie Kennedy's clothing, If you understand how the spray went to the policemen on the motorcycles on the left side of Kennedy, okay, and they hit them with such force that one of the guys actually thought he'd been hit by a bullet. Now, if you take all that into consideration and the whole jet stream that goes up in the air at Z-frame 313, which is the moment of impact of Kennedy's skull, How can Kennedy's brain weigh above the normal? We're speaking with author James DiEugenio. He wrote the screenplay for the documentary JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We need to take a short break. Let's 